Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Well, as you can tell, I'm flying solo today. Kelly is taking a much, much needed break, and um, I am fired up to be able to share with you the highlights from season one of this podcast. It's just amazing to me that uh, it's only been a few months since we started this podcast last May. And in that time, since May, we've had over 17,000 downloads and over 68 countries, people from over 68 countries have downloaded this show. I'm just so excited to see what God's already doing through the show, to see all the people that have been able to benefit from the wisdom that their guests have shared with us. Um, I know that Kelly and I have learned so much doing each of these interviews. I know that people I have talked with um, all over the world uh, have shared with me how much they've been learning and are applying to the work they're doing with orphan and vulnerable children. And I know that every time I listened to the episodes, um, including being able to go through all of them to make the clips for this highlight show, um, I learn new things each time. So I'm going to just kick off this, uh, these highlights um, with some clips that just really gives us general thoughts on how we can work together to alleviate the orphan crisis, really how we can advocate for these, children's, these children who really don't have advocates themselves. The first clip is actually a clip from the last episode, episode 20 of season one. Uh, it's Andy Crouch. It's such a great interview that I strongly encourage you to go and listen to because he has a ton of wisdom. But I picked out a clip here where he shares with us really the connection and the importance of the flourishing of the vulnerable uh, that is necessary for a society as whole to flourish. So here it goes. The reason that God grades whole nations, according to scripture, on on the fate of the vulnerable is really related to this flight from vulnerability that is part of the human condition ever since the fall. Um, so uh, we're, I would say all of us are bent toward avoiding vulnerability. And that means we, we create systems all the way up to the scale of whole nations that, that for the powerful protect them from risk. So the way you know you have a healthy system, uh, whether it's a, a family, a neighborhood, uh, all the way up to a nation, is that it's one where the, the ones in the system who most remind us of the vulnerability we all face as human beings, orphans, widows, strangers are the three big ones in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. that, that if we create systems that actually care for them and elevate them and aren't just systems of charity that sort of keep them at a distance and provide minimally, but, but that actually raise them to positions of dignity and authority within the community, which is real flourishing. If the vulnerable are flourishing in that way, I can guarantee uh, the, the folks who for the moment are more, you know, healthy, have their, have their uh, family intact, uh, you know, speak the language fluently, they'll do fine. <laughs> the question right. is, what about the person who lost their parents? What about the person who has lost their spouse? What about the person who's or, a stranger in the land and, and, you know, speaks broken English, let's say that's the test because everything in us 
wants to offload our vulnerability on those people and not face their vulnerability and help them uh, find authority in the midst of it. And so a healthy culture is one that actually, rather than fleeing from vulnerability and the vulnerable, actually orients its life around including caring for and lifting up the vulnerable and making them part of the life of the community. Again, that was Andy Crouch, and that was episode 20. And, and I know that you're probably listening to this either at the thinkorphan.com website or on iTunes, but I want to make sure that you know that all of these episodes are available on our website at iTunes and really wherever else that you're able to download these podcasts. So you can go back to the feed um, on the website. You can just go hit the podcast tab and you can you can see all the different episodes we've been able to do for this show. Um, I also want to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to go and rate um, and review the podcast on iTunes. It helps it get it out there to more and more people. Share this on your social media. Share this with your friends via email and just tell them about it so that they too can learn from these great folks who have, who have shared with us on the show. So the second clip that we have here is from episode two. It was the uh, first episode that we had a guest on, and it was Jed Medifin with the Christian Alliance for Orphans. And he really is sharing with us here um, what the four phases of an orphan care advocate are, and really not just an orphan care advocate, but any advocate. Um, and it's very uh, sage wisdom, something that we really need to be aware of. So here it goes. You know, I, I would say that these, I've experienced this myself, and, I, and it's not only orphan care. You know, I think we really feel it here, but it's uh, people that are involved in prisoner reentry and, and dealing with homelessness and addiction issues and fighting malaria around the world. Uh, all these issues where, um, you know, I, I described that the first phase is, is waking, where there's a, a beginning to understand all around us, perhaps just what was just beyond our field of vision, uh, is, is great hurt in this world. And the, the, the God we serve as, as Christians calls us to engage those things. And so we, we become passionate about that. And, and that waking is a beautiful thing to see. When you see someone who's, who's kind of lived a self-absorbed life up to that point, waking to that need, uh, that, is, that is a beautiful thing. And often that waking, if, if we follow it forward, if we come and decide to respond to that and begin to get involved, we, we enter a phase I, I call cheerleading, where we, 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 it's not enough just that we get involved. We want others to get involved. And, you know, we know that maybe people have failed in the past to solve these problems, but we really believe that our solutions are better. And if just enough people can care and enough people can get involved, we're going to solve this problem. And so we become cheerleaders for everyone to get involved. But ultimately, over time, as we serve and we wade deeper and we begin to realize how di deeply difficult, how broken these situations are, it, it can lead to disillusionment. Um, we just we begin to realize, man, many of these solutions we thought were going to solve it all. Uh, they're not going to solve it all. And in fact, sometimes we realize they may even have been making matters worse. And um, we see, you know, people that we tried to help or communities that we were hoping to elevate continuing to mire in some of the same struggles or or perhaps come into new struggles. And, and so that disillusionment can cause us to become embittered. And some people just walk away entirely and choose to, to completely, um, you know, just go off to some other work. And, and others keep, keep serving, but, but really the light and the fire and energy has gone 
gone out of their eyes, their heart. Um, and some become really bitter about it. They, they, you know, start writing snarky blog posts and criticizing others who are, who, who are now, you know, enthusiastic and out there trying to make a difference. We become critics of those people. And so, you know, a lot of folks, Phil, that I've, I've seen actually just get mired kind of permanently in that disillusionment. Mm. Um, but I would say that there is are some who who persevere through that to what what I've called a commitment amidst complexity, um, where you know we know it's complex, we know we're not going to have all the answers, we know we're not going to solve it all, and yet we remain committed to continue to serve, to continue to work for the good of of those around us, and and to to to, to bring bring light and hope into hurting situations, even when we know it's not all going to be fixed. And so, you know, ultimately, Phil, that's that's where I pray that that I will be that that those of of us who care deeply about orphan care and adoption, all of us will will press forward into that place and by God's grace, continue to serve with a commitment amidst complexity. Well, now we're going to go from one leader of a movement to another. We're going to go from Jed Medifin of the Christian Alliance for Orphans to Ruslan Malusha of the World Without Orphans movement. He was able to share with us in episode eight about his thoughts on a lot of things, but this particular clip talks about, he talks to us about what he thinks is one of the biggest issues we're facing in orphan care today and how we can address it on our way to a world without orphans. Listen closely. You know, I, I would, I would, again, I, I would still think that it's getting into hearts and minds of people is the right message. Mm-hmm. And kind of setting them on the right, getting people to ask the right questions that would bring them eventually to right to to, to right solutions. And again, it's I know it sounds uh, simplistic or too general, but I believe that there are many people, especially in the body of Christ, that truly want to make a difference. They want they want to do something significant. They want to, and it's not and it's not always the better. Okay, this is just a clear cut answer, packaged answer for you. And all of again, there are great programs and uh-huh. they're needed and great models but I think is getting people even especially those who are unrelated to orphan care and I know why I'm speaking like this there are dozens of voices in my head but you know about this problem and this mm-hmm. problem so I, I mean, again I spend enough time in this to know a lot of very specific problems that we are dealing but I think in order to see a, again a large scale change we need to get not of course we are starting with a committed core which there are a lot of there are a lot of people like you and me who are very committed to this and still minority, but that's how it works. But then for this to get to the tipping point, this has to spread from a committed core to uh, in, into kind of mainstream. And, and people, so, so one of the most joyful moments for me now is when people that have no relation to orphan care or to our field, they begin to ask this question. I could see how this is happening in their eyes. You know, oh, there is something I didn't notice. Oh, that's what the Bible talk, talks about. Oh, it's not about orphanages. So I see this kind of lights go on. And then, and then there are a lot of people that it sets them on action. You know, there might be a journalist, there might be a pastor, there might be a, again, it's not that, I think the kind of change that I've experienced that I actually moved into this work full time, I think that that would be rare. I mean, I don't think that that has to happen. But people figuring out what what contribution they can do to see this uh, vision realized in their community or in their church or in their nation, I think that's that's an issue. I know it sounds different, and I'll actually mention some other issues, but I think that's that's the key. 
to, yeah. to, to see this. Getting, getting enough people concerned to the point that they are ready to take action and to do things that some may consider strange, unpopular, or, or so on, I think that might be a game changer. I'm always so inspired when I hear Ruslan share from his heart. And another thing that inspires me and so many others is uh, watching film and really seeing on the screen lives portrayed and stories told. And we were able to sit down with some uh, movie makers in episode 16, uh, Samuel Rich uh, and Brittany DeVries in this clip talk to us about the potential power of film and storytelling and really how it can change lives and in this case, change laws. So uh, me and Brittany actually both worked on that, which is amazing. Um, we were part of a, a short-term mission uh, team with uh, uh, Voice of the Voices, which is part of uh, Youth on the Mission. And uh, we were a media team and, and we came in and we partnered with Brittany and Brittany knew what was was happening in Panama and what the needs were and she well she is massively influential in my life and and uh, she showed she showed us what was happening in Panama and introduced us to local Panamanians and families and and the children there and we found out about the situation in Panama so um, from there we were able to start working on a, a mini document documentary as which was not just statistics but was showing the needs for uh, you say legislative reform and uh, we created that 15 minute documentary and uh, Brittany was campaigning with that for how long yeah. was it? Just over a year we were doing private screenings and we were showing it we had it on YouTube and we had several thousand views but what was most important was that after the year passed, we had a new law in place mm. in yeah. Panama. So we were excited. I and mean, it wasn't about the thousands of views on YouTube. It wasn't about, mm. you know, something huge. Mm. And in that respect, we had accomplished what we set out to do is to, to change the law and, and create a foster care program in Panama. Now we get to hear a clip from a guy who's doing some great work in Cambodia. Uh, in episode nine, I was able to interview Craig Greenfield, and this is guy working with Alongsiders International in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Uh, this clip, I actually included the question because I actually turned a question that Craig asked in his book, Subversus Jesus, back onto him. And, you know, his answer can teach us all a whole heck of a lot. I want to pose a question to you that you pose to the reader and see how you'd answer it based on your experience. You told a story, a brief story about uh, people handing out socks and scarves to people living on the streets in Vancouver. And you then posed the question, is it possible that this kind of charity actually impedes the realization of justice in our broken neighborhoods? Yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah, um, that's, uh, I mean, that's a real it's opening up a can of worms right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to discourage people from getting started. We all need to start somewhere. And for many of us, that's handing out hot chocolate or a pair of socks to someone who's homeless. Um, but I, I don't want us to be satisfied with that. Um, God is calling us to go much deeper. He's calling us not only to address the, the, uh, the, the people who are victims of the system, but to address the system itself that's mm -hmm. broken. 
And um, Martin Luther King Jr. said said this quite well in a quote, which I'm going to butcher, but it's something like, <laughs> um, you know, we're not we're not only called to to fling a coin to a beggar, but to uh, address the edifice that produces beggars. Mm. And um, I think very often, sometimes, as, especially evangelical Christians, we've been real good on charity. We've been real good on mercy, mm. and not and and kind of seen uh, seeking justice or seeking systemic change as something that maybe isn't right at the heart of the gospel. Um, but in, I think if you if you read Subversive Jesus, you'll see that this is actually something that is very much a part of the upside down kingdom that Jesus was seeking to bring on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I expect that by now you're starting to understand why I was so excited to go back and listen to all these interviews, to listen to these conversations that I was able to have, that Kelly was able to have with these different people from around the world. And, and I am more and more convinced after hearing all of these episodes again, that we need to work together in order to even start touching the massive issues that we're facing in the orphan crisis. Well, this next clip from Rick Morton, which was episode 11, talks about the importance of collaboration and how we can collaborate with each other. Well, I, you know, Phil, at, at the end of the day, um, God has blessed us with a problem. If we choose to look at it this way, God has blessed us with a problem that's too big for any of us to solve. Mm. So we need yeah. each other. You know, we we need the the body. We need the the varied gifts. We need the varied expertise. We need, you know, the presence of people in, in different places. And and I, I think, you know, when you look back not too many years ago in in the orphan care community, what you what you kind of saw was a lot of people who who were kind of doing their own thing in their own place. And and maybe the the privilege that you know, that I, I'm most hold dearly in, um, in, in the place that I've gotten to sit in the orphan care world for a little bit is, is getting to go around and see a lot of people and meet a lot of people and see a lot of different kind of ministry. And, and there was a time where, you know, you would begin to see that, man, here's somebody in, you know, in, in a, in a particular place, maybe in Africa and, and they're doing great work in, in doing vocational training and discipling with kids and preparing them for, you know, for life after an institution. And then there's somebody in, you know, in South America, America that's doing the same kind of work. And the truth is those people didn't know each other mm. and, and they had their head down, you know, kind of in their, in their own place and in their own patch of ground. And, and they were, they were working hard <laughs> just to get through the day and just to, you know, just to do the ministry that God had placed in front of them. And, and I think where we're finding ourselves now is that, that there's a, there's a world of networking that's going on where those people are beginning to know each other mm -hmm. and those people are beginning to swap ideas and they're, and they're beginning to, you know, they're beginning to help ministries that, that do one are realizing that they don't have to branch out and become all things to all people. What they need to do is take the one thing that they do well and, and combine and, and, and work with some people that do other things well. And, and so that we, you know, we're together able to, to affect bigger change and we're together able to, you know, to address bigger problems and, and really honestly that we're, we're living out of proper theology where we're giving people, 
people, we're giving the world a, a, a better picture of what, you know, what the body of Christ really is. Um, and, and that we're a hand or a foot or an eye or whatever, but together, um, you know, we're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, mm-hmm. and we've been given the gift of each other to, to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Well, now we're going to shift gears a little bit and, and really the next three clips talk about poverty alleviation and family strengthening and their connection to the care of orphaned and vulnerable children. And the first clip is one from Peter Greer, which was episode three. He talked in that episode a lot about his work with Hope International in micro enterprise and poverty alleviation. And this clip is his response to my question to him about the connection between poverty alleviation and the care of orphan and vulnerable children. I think many of us uh, were struck by the, uh, it's not a new realization here, but, um, but by the number of children around the world that are classified as orphans that have a living uh, relative. And, uh, you know, Better Care Network, uh, they, they did research in a number of different places and in institutional care, they found crazy numbers between 70 and 90 percent of the children that were in orphanages actually had a living uh, direct relative. And and so uh, when they kind of did more investigation, they found that a lot of the children were more economic orphans, that moms and dads were making the impossible decision about whether they keep them in their home and have the daily reminder that they're not able to provide food and clothing and and appropriate shelter for their kids or whether they turn them over and put them in an orphanage. And so our goal uh, is to say, if we want to see a massive reduction in the number of orphans and vulnerable children, we've got to have a family strengthening approach that yes, looks at children, but it looks at children with a default position that says, if moms and dads had the capacity, would they be the primary caregivers uh, for their children instead of, again, that excruciating decision to uh, turn them over uh, to the care of another. Um, and, and so uh, we believe that there are a lot of individuals around the world that, that feel like they have no choice, feel like they have no resources to care for their families. And I think that's where this issue of these saving circles and microenterprise development uh, is playing a significant uh, kind of role in prevention and in care. Uh, you know, I think about John Marie, an entrepreneur in, uh, in Rwanda, well and so he started a restaurant has a farm kind of a farm to table model in a pretty cool way but Jumri, as his business has grown uh, he knows that he is blessed to be a blessing in his community and part of that is that he has been able uh, in addition to his five biological children he's been able to now adopt six other children and that's the sort of thing that we see that as individuals have some economic empowerment as they uh, are able to have more resources they are absolutely making an impact in their communities as they care for the vulnerable around them and as they are able to to uh, bring in uh, individuals into their home. So that's that's uh, that's part of the connection. The next clip that we have in this poverty alleviation and family strengthening segment is from episode five with Chris Marlowe. He works with Help One Now, and he recently wrote a book called Doing Good is Simple. Well, this clip actually is him relaying a story from that book that paints a picture of the power of poverty alleviation and family strengthening. 
I'm going to do the ice cream story, right? Because I think this is um, this, and hopefully, you know, I won't cry because I remember the story so vividly. It's it's in the same community where I met that young boy at the gas station, um, and this was about five years into our journey, partnering with this community and kind of seeing the struggles and also the progress um, in the community. That's one thing with any any anti you know poverty alleviations. You see beauty and pain every day, over and over, mm-hmm. just a mixture of it. And um, some days you feel like you're winning the war. And other days you just want to retreat and like put the white flag up and say, man, I can't like, I don't know what's going on. And so, um, but ultimately the, the, we're in Zimbabwe and we're, um, meeting with this mom and dad and, and the young boy. And, um, he, we had given them a $300 micro loan. Um, and they had started this business and he, he had, he was, he was actually works full time. Um, and his wife started this business on the side and he would kind of manage the books and the marketing and she would actually implement the business day to day. So it became this really cool family partnership. Um, before they started the business, they made about 200 us um, monthly, which in Zimbabwe actually was, was pretty, pretty good. Um, uh, but, but still, you know, they were struggling to survive, but they had a job. Um, and so our, our pastor, pastor John, um, you know, said, Hey, I think if we give these, this couple a micro loan, you know, it's going to really help their life in ways that we can't imagine. So, um, eight months after we had given them the micro loan, I was there visiting um, with the community leaders and our kids. And, um, I remember sitting down with, with this family and, um, the, the dad, you know, showed me the progress of, of, of the micro loan, like basically chickens everywhere that they were raising up and selling in the local market. And, um, I remember after about an hour and a half conversation about business and marketing and all these variable things, we, we walked out and we're getting ready to leave. And, um, I looked at this dad in the eye and he go, man, tell me how, how is this business change your life and he looked me <clears throat> he looked me back in the eye and pretty much said oh this is amazing he goes you know every thursday night i can now afford to take my boy to go get an ice cream i've never been able to do that before and it just it's the whole humanity right like god created right. everyone in his image and there are certain things we all desire and if you're a father or a mother um, it's just really simple, man. You want to take your kid to get an ice cream cone once a week. And this micro loan was able to provide that. I thought he was going to say, you know, a house or, right. you know, some savings or three meals a day. And all those things are actually legitimate. He actually was able to do that for his family. But what he mentioned to me was the fact that he was so proud to take his young child to get an ice cream once a week. That is just such a cool story from Chris. And uh, I just thank him for that book that he was able to write to share stories like that in. The next clip, it goes along with uh, Chris Marlowe's work because so much of what Help What Now is doing is empowering high-capacity local leaders. Um, and Andy Lehman in episode 18, he's with Life Song for Orphans, and they do a whole lot of work empowering those people that they're working with all around the world. And I asked him how we can best empower the national leaders and work with them to help them flourish in awesome kingdom building ways. And this was his response. The first thing that comes to my mind is that we need to listen better. And I, I need to listen better because they have incredible insights. And so I think that whole um, mantra of seek first to understand before you seek to be understood, I think is really important with our partners that we ask questions, ask a lot of questions and listen to them. Um, That's really important. And I think sometimes, you know, in the past, Westerners might have brought 
both some funding and some expertise, but you put those together and then that's that almost spells control. And that's unhealthy for us as Westerners and unhealthy for our, our indigenous friends. And so, you know, they may not have the funding initially, but we can, if we help with some of the funding and give them the right appropriate level of control, then we can still help be a part of together setting goals, setting boundaries, setting bar- benchmarks for accountability. But at the end of the day, we want to surrender the control so that they have skin in the game. They have the risk, the opportunity um, for involvement and benefit that keeps them motivated. So I think we can help balance that by giving them more control. But I also feel like there's an opportunity where we can, let's keep our friends accountable as well. Sometimes I feel like in development work, there's a tendency not to hold our partners accountable because it's too harsh. And yet in any other business context or partnership context, there would be accountability. So why would we not let that be with whoever we're partnering with indigenously? And I think not encouraging accountability is a mistake. And in fact, we actually honor their commitments. We honor our partners when we have accountability together, mutual accountability. And so I think that's a key part that sometimes we get soft on um, because we don't want to appear too harsh. But at the end of the day, that helps everybody win and, and succeed. So I, I think, you know, just discernment needed to know who is really serving other people versus who of our partners are have other agendas. And I think, you know, not relying on one person, but rather having a team of people helps for sustainability, staying power and, uh, and accountability as well. So that's another thing we found to be helpful. Well, now we're going to move from the clips that talked about and focused on poverty alleviation and family strengthening to three clips that discuss something that uh, was covered a lot in the conversation I was able to have with people uh, and Kelly was able to have with people over season one. And that's the debate surrounding orphanages. And the first clip that we have on this is from episode six with Rebecca Nepp. She's with ACCI, and that's an organization in Australia that does some great work throughout Southeast Asia and India. Um, And this clip really is her addressing the quote that uh, has made its way around the world that says, Cambodia doesn't have orphanages because it have orphans, but it has orphans because it has orphanages. And here's her explaining what that means. So what that really speaks to is the fact that orphanages can often incentivize family separation. So in a case where a child's living in a community or living in a family and that family might be struggling, when all of the resources are being directed towards residential care and that becomes the only support framework available for vulnerable families and vulnerable children, well, then those families um, can often remove, you know, relinquish their child and place them in residential care in order to access some of the services that that residential care centre can provide them and their child. And so it it incentivizes that separation process, whereas what really we should be looking at doing is looking at what are the real needs of those families? What do they need to be able to keep their children? What do they need to be able to parent their children better? What do they need to be able to support their children and meet their holistic needs? And those services should be available to the child and to the family, but from the community rather than being dependent upon the family relinquishing their child. So it's in that sense that orphanages, when they are 
when there are too many of them, when there's not enough services that look at prevention and look at um, more family-based interventions, that's when they can become something that actually incentivizes family separation and in a, in, a, in a way creates orphans if we're defining orphan as somebody who's separated from their family and not living with their family. And now this next clip is from episode 17 with Sarah Chin. And she is with an organization called Malup Prusay in Cambodia. She works very closely with Rebecca Nepp. And she is also a huge advocate for deinstitutionalization and really making sure that children stay in families to the extent possible. But I asked her in this interview whether there is any place for residential orphanages in our world today. And here's how she answered that. I do not advocate the automatic closure of all residential centres. Um, we are going to end up with cases that, as a last resort, they're going to need residential, long-term residential care. It's, it's not what we call them, it's what they look like from the inside on, from the eyes of the child, through the eyes of the child. Mm -hmm. It needs to look like family. It needs that even residential care needs to, needs to look and feel and be like a family if it is absolute last resort for the child. There are always going to be emergency cases that will need temporary um, help and, and a residential case has, uh, care has a, has a place there. But I think the days of these big, huge like places with 90 children and five caregivers is very definitely numbered and should be over. And now for the final clip in this highlight show on the orphanage conversation, it's from episode 10 with Mick Peace. Even though it was episode 10, this was actually the first interview I ever did for the show, so it kind of holds a special place in my heart. And Mick has become a great friend uh, over the last few months. But in this clip, Mick answers my question about what's wrong with putting your children into an orphanage. And he answers with a very poignant, very personal response that we can all learn from. So listen closely. I have professional answers and I have personal answers. So can I share a couple of my personal answers? Would that be okay? I'd love to hear both, yeah. <laughs> the first one is my sister, uh, was four years older than me. So I'm 65 this year and uh, my sister is four years older than me. When I was a very young child, uh, our post-war Britain my sister uh, and I came from a very, very poor family. We had very few uh, resources. My father was a bricklayer and um, my mother didn't work. She stayed at home with us. And, uh, but my sister had serious chronic asthma. The medical profession said the only way your sister, your, uh, to my parents, the only way your daughter is going to survive is if she has medication. This was before the English welfare state. Uh, my, uh, my parents said, well, but we can't afford it. You know, my father, uh, my father said, I'm a builder. I have very little money. I can't afford the medication. Uh, and so the, 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 you know what the second option that was given to my parents was she needs to go to an orphanage. Hmm. So they placed her in an orphanage at the other side of England, from the east of England to the west of England in a Catholic orphanage. Wow. And they placed it there and my parents could rarely go and visit her because it was so far away without transport, didn't have the finance. I never saw her for three to four years. 
Mm. And she went, she grew up there and when after three or four years, my mother said, enough, I can't live like this anymore. I'll have my daughter home and if she dies, she dies. But at least she's with her family. She came home. She, uh, my sister is still alive. She might have had, had children, and um, but in, in in adult life, she revealed for the first time that during her time in that orphanage, just Catholic orphanage, she was physically, sexually, and emotionally abused by staff and by children. Now that's a, she was placed in an orphanage for safe care because of poverty. My parents didn't have the money. She went there. My parents thought. We've done the right thing for her. But while she was there, things happened that were outside of their control. And my sister paid a heavy, heavy price for that. Mm. Thankfully, she survived. She's done well. She's recovered uh, for all sorts of reasons. And she's, she's fine. The other st- personal involvement, if I can just tell this brief story. And it's on, it's on YouTube and it's on my um, website. And it's called Mixed Story. In, in uh, around about 2000, I was in Central Asia to uh, Tajikistan, as you know, I've already talked about. And I interviewed some children in a large Russian state orphanage. And I asked them these questions. Um, what's life like here? Do you know why you're here? How often do you see your family? Are you happy here? And of course, they were saying, yes, we're happy. We have lots of friends. We have lots of activities. Uh, we, um, we're happy. So I thought I'm going to dig deep. <laughs> so I asked this wonderful question, the magic question. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And the question is this. If you had a magic wand or one wish, what would that be? And the children, each one of the children I interviewed with a Russian translator said to me, I want my mum and my dad. I said, so you're wanting your family? He said, yes. Mm. The tragedy is nobody had ever asked them that. Wow. Everybody assumed that you have got a better life. And it's like they would have put their education, their activities, their, the things that they did enjoy to one side and say, that's all good. But what I really want is to live with my family. And I said, why do you want to live with your family? And they said, because we want to be like everybody else Mm. who lives with their family. And so then I asked them this next question. If we couldn't get you to your family because maybe they weren't safe or maybe we didn't know who they were or maybe they just weren't, you know, they had died and these children were truly orphans, would a substitute family be happy for you? Would that be okay? And they said, yeah, that's fine. We just want to be like everybody else. We want to have a mum and a dad. Stigma, hmm. discrimination. Right. It's a powerful, powerful thing for children. So one of the things is we have to ask children, what is important for you? And sometimes we can't always give children what they would like, of course. Right, right. But at least we can ask them. Absolutely. And what I find is that through our training of workers in in substitute families for abandoned children with organizations across the world, what I find is we're working with carers who are not aware of these issues Mm -hmm. because they're not social workers. They're not psychologists. They haven't been trained. They haven't been to university. They're working from the heart. They may have been to Bible seminary, but they're working from the heart, just like I did when I came from Bible college. They're not working with solid information of, of these issues. That doesn't mean to say they don't have a lot to give. They do but they need more than just a big heart and some biblical background. They have to know much more about children's issues, and that's where professional training and technical expertise comes in. Right. Sadly lacking for many, many years. 
Man, that's just some powerful, powerful stuff from Mick. Well, the next, the next clips on this, on our highlight show from season one, discuss three critical issues that we need to address head on in our work to love orphan and vulnerable children. And the first is from the world of foster care. In episode seven, Johnston Moore shared with us a lot about foster care. And in this particular clip, Kelly asked him about working with biological families and family preservation in foster care. And here is the wisdom that John provided with. One thing I would I want to say there too is that, I mean when you bring that up I, you know I've seen a lot of even Christians say you know we when we take these kids in you know they're going to be our kids and we're not going to you know we're we're going to keep biological family at arm's length and you know I and and I was that my wife and I were that way when we started out but then we met our son's uh, uh, grandma Sandy their maternal grandmother and we fell in love with this lady absolutely fell in love with her. And over the years, God impressed us, you know, upon us that, that we're, we're to bring, you know, we're to bless others. We're to bring shalom into others' lives. We're to bring, you know, God's kingdom to bear on others' lives. And it's not just the kids. It's their biological family as well. And so we have turned, we, we've gone from wanting to keep biological family at arm's length to embracing the biological family members of our kids. And so we actually have really good relationships with a lot of the biological family members, um, I think family president, I, I, I would, one thing that I've noticed is the, the foster care system, and I don't know if it's that way all over the U.S., but it seems to set up, at least in L.A. County where we are, it seems to set up foster parents and biological family as adversaries, mm-hmm. competing for the kid's affection, competing for custody, competing, competing, competing. And I really feel like if we can get beyond that and we can embrace the birth family and they cannot be so afraid of us as the foster parents, then we can actually help kids get out of foster care more quickly because on the one hand, we can encourage a birth mom. We can uh, help her as she tries to reunify. And we might be the only champion she has because the social worker and others might not be very involved and they might uh, be discouraging to her. But we can encourage her and maybe she can reunify with her child more quickly. On the other hand, um, and we've seen this, we've, we've seen this firsthand in our lives. We've actually had several of our children's biological parents sign away their rights so that we could adopt the kids. A lot of, I think a lot of biological family members hang in there till the bitter end and they appeal and they appeal and they fight, fight, fight because they're so afraid they're never going to see their kid again. And we have a track record of allowing the biological parents and biological family members to still know the kids, even after the adoption. And that's caused a lot of our kids, biological family members to be able to say, you know what, you, you are giving them what I can't give them. And I want them to have that. And I want to still see them after the adoption. And so I'm not going to fight this thing. And so we've been able to adopt our kids very, very quickly in some cases. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as family preservation, I think, I think it's biblical. I mean, you know, if we, if we, and that's something that a lot of Christians, you know, fight too. And I'm like, why are we fighting this? I think if, you know, when, when, when our little boy was handed back to, you know, handed to his grandparents and his, his biological mother is getting, you know, getting her life together. I think heaven rejoices over that. I mean, you know, I mean, God is a God of, of reconciliation and, you know, and, and, um, and, and so if we can be used in the process to help a family become whole again, then that's something we need to celebrate, is, even though it may be painful for us. Yeah. Now, I think that sometimes the system bends over way too long and way too far for biological family members. I mean, there's some families that it's just not going to happen, but they give them chance after chance after chance. So I think if a kid, if a child can be reunified with biological family early and safely, fantastic. But once the child is attached, 
and start seeing the foster parents as mom and dad, I mean, truly seeing them as mom and dad and the other kids in the home as the sibling, then we need to really pay attention to that and say, you know what, the case plan might need to shift now. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and even if the biological family member jumps through the hoops that the judge wants them to jump through, we still need to really examine. It's like, what's going to be best for that child? I think the foster system, it seems to be, in some places, more concerned about the custodial rights of adults than about the best interest of the child. And those are two different issues. I mean, you can sit there and put on a dog and pony show for the judge and say, I deserve custody of that child, but that doesn't answer what's best for that child. And we really need to look at what's best for that child. Now we're going to move from the area of foster care to that of fatherlessness. As with all of these issues, these two issues are directly related. And in episode 12, John Sowers, who's the director of the Mentoring Project, was able to sit down and share with us about the effects of fatherlessness in the United States. These same effects apply all around the world. So wherever you're listening, the effects of fatherlessness are real and they're deep. And John talks with us about what is missing in the lives of children when they don't have a father. It's a real interesting conversation right now because in our country we're still there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of debate about gender and about the issue of manhood and womanhood about roles about even uh, science uh, you know science for years has dominated most of the conversations including the gender conversation so you know the scientists of yesteryear maybe even of yesterday maybe today would say well if you have you know whatever it is, eight pairs of Y chromosomes in every cell of your body, you're this gender. If you don't have those Y chromosomes, you're not that gender. But today you see that gender conversation coming in. And so there's actually some interesting backlash against people who say fathers matter. And I've seen that with fatherless generation. I never would have thought that Mm. because we have about uh, five or six decades of objective studies, empirical data that say fathers matter. And when fathers are not around, Children are more likely to drop out of school. They're more likely to have unwanted teenage pregnancy. They're more likely to join a gang, uh, youth violence, uh, do drugs or commit suicide or even self-injury. Uh, and so we have this just studies that after studies and decades of studies that say fathers do matter whether we want to admit that or not. And mm-hmm. so there's interesting, there's a lot of backlash. And, and, it's, and it's, to me, it's not an exclusive or hateful thing for me to say fathers matter, but I've actually had backlash toward me when I say fathers matter because people say it's an exclusive, it's an exclusive uh, idea. I don't think it is. I was raised by two women. And so if anything, uh, I'm a feminist, meaning uh, I'm an equality feminist. Uh, I think women have equal value and should have equal opportunity and equal pay and all these things. And in fact, I would probably trust women quicker than I would trust men a lot of times because my mom worked three jobs and, and sacrificed her whole life for my brother and I. My grandmother, you know, moved in from the country from her from her home. She had this real nice home that my grandfather left her and she moved in from that right. to be with us and to raise us. And so fathers do definitely matter, but it doesn't, it's not an exclusive idea. I mean, I was, I was so blessed to have two great women raise me. And so I've been the product of that and the product of some great mentors. But when fathers aren't aren't around, it does uh, scientifically and empirically matter and it matters in kids' lives. And we're seeing that today. And so um, it's really kind of a, a challenge Um, it's a challenge for dads. One of the good things I'll say about it is that, uh, the laws have changed a lot since when I was growing up, you could 
literally um, not live anywhere near your kids. There, there, was, there wasn't as many restrictions. And now the court really tries to keep parents in the same city and within proximity so that for the benefit of the kids. There are some actually some pro- progress, uh, progressive laws that have helped uh, this, the fatherless idea. But overall, when kids are growing up without their fathers, uh, there's devastation. And we see this in the inner cities. And it's not a political issue. I mean, you see Mayor Rahm Emanuel who's about as liberal as they come, uh, whether you're liberal or conservative, it doesn't matter, but he's about as liberal as they come, the mayor of Chicago saying, uh, and, and by the way, Chicago leads the country in homicides and has the past few years. Um, and so Mayor Rahm Emanuel is saying, these are fatherless kids shooting each other. They don't have dads. Basically, they're fatherless kids joining fatherless gangs and they're shooting other fatherless kids and young men. And so we see this devastation um, kind of enacted on our communities when dad's not there. And some of the, the tangible things I think kids miss are kind of the steadying impact, the discipline, also a, another earner, a breadwinner. Because like for me, my mom had to go work three jobs. Hmm. So she couldn't be in the home. So technically, if it wasn't for my grandmother, we would have completely raised ourselves. You know, I'd come home from school every day at seven or eight years old and I'm by myself, but my grandmother moved in and, and kind of filled that role. And so I would be raising myself. So we have a lot of kids whose moms are just trying to make it. Some of their moms are being heroic and doing great work. But um, it's hard for a single parent who has to work outside of the home to also parent inside the home. It's kind of a um, almost an impossibility or a very difficult situation. Well, thanks again, John, for that powerful, powerful stuff. This next clip is from episode 13 with Ashley Bryant. Ashley is with Three Strands, and Three Strands is an organization that is fighting against trafficking on many, many different fronts, and I I just encourage you to go back and listen to that episode to find out how Ashley and Three Strands are working to really stop and end trafficking. And the hope and prayer is that they'll succeed along with so many other organizations that are working to fight against this horrendous, horrendous evil that is going on. But a lot of people don't see the connection between trafficking and orphan care, don't see how it's connected. But in this clip, Ashley shares with us how trafficking and orphan care are not only connected, but are intimately interconnected. We know that those who are at risk, um, those who are vulnerable, um, and there's all sorts of ways that youth can be vulnerable, right? It could be that they're in foster care. It could be that they are um, have identity, right? There's a definite identity issues or self-identity um, that they don't have a real strong identity. There could be their size. It could be their family composition, right? There are lots of ways that they're vulnerable, but one of those areas that we know are those who are in um, foster care or those who are in CSEC um, are at risk, a higher risk. Um, and we know that from the traffickers, but we also know those from who are recovering and restoring um, these children. And so as we look at those who may have been um, orphaned or those who may be um, in you know foster care or in um, group homes, those are uh, the the targeted, the, what, what's a trafficker, and I'm quoting a trafficker, would say is easy pickings or low-hanging 
low-hanging fruit. Mm. Um, and that that just pains me to say, and it just pierces my heart. And um, because for me, I think that you know that's one of the reasons why education is so important. So we make them less vulnerable. Um, but that's that's the reality. And so we need to be able to, as we look at again the strategy of what are we going to do to make it so that this stops happening, we have to go back to the beginning and see how those are those youth or those young ones are vulnerable and being orphaned is one of those vulnerable those that that makes them more vulnerable um and it doesn't make it's you not know, like wide sweeping generalization it doesn't mean that they'll be trafficked but a higher percentage will be and with that we're going to move into the last segment of this highlight show that recaps our great season one that we were able to have in 2016 and this segment covers three episodes three interviews I was able to have with people that discussed in different ways how we can love each and every child that we care for, every each and, each and every child that is placed into our lives, how we can love them as a unique child of God and really determine the proper care for them on a case-by-case basis. And the first clip is from episode four with Todd Guckenberger. He's with Back to Back Ministries and he shared with me in this clip uh all about back-to-back's five-point child development plan, which does just what I talked about. It determines how they can care for each of their children as an individual child of God. So we literally would sit in meetings with, with our staff and draw on, on napkins and say, what are we doing wrong? What does, every, what does every child need? And so we just kept narrowing it down. Okay, we knew we were doing the spiritual and we were doing that fairly intentionally. We knew the physical was easiest and, and probably sometimes to, to fault. Um, over to, over the top, and then and then we knew academically we were helping kids be successful, but they weren't learning because they were, had some trauma or some baggage. So we came up and we said, okay, if we're going to really meet kids' needs, we've got to come around them holistically, and we we determined five different areas: so spiritual, physical, educational, emotional, and social. So a s- simple example would be one of our students would get up, go to school, teacher would say you failed, you you need to do this paper over, and the student would quit. Well. That's not, that's that one in years of my world, at least most of our worlds, we would go home in our heads, quit school, hate the teacher. But the next day we get up, do the, do the homework over, turn it in and we have coping mechanisms. Right. Well, the students who work with didn't have the coping mechanisms. So we realized that we've got to invest in the emotional and social. So we built this model and then eventually called it a plan. So we have an individual plan for each child we serve. We have specifically to what are our goals spiritually, what are their what are their needs spiritually, what are their goals, what physically, educationally, emotionally, and socially. And it's very intentional. It's very uphill, meaning very challenging and very difficult and very individual. But that's our filter for what we do with each child we serve. Man, one of the hardest things that I had to do in putting these clips together was choosing these clips from these interviews because as you might imagine, there were so many clips that I was not able to choose for this because each one of these interviews was chock full of amazing, amazing information, amazing wisdom, um, and information that we can all learn from. And so I strongly encourage each of you to go back and, and listen to each of these episodes. If you listen to them before, listen to them again, because if you're anything like me, you're going to learn something new listening to them the second and third times. And each of these people is doing these, is doing this work, is really digging into these issues and is really examining how they can love these children and how hopefully what they're learning can help us to love each of these children better and better 
every day. And one guy who's doing that in Uganda is Daniel Kagwa. In episode 15 he and 14, he actually had a two-part interview, the only two-part interview of season one. But in part two of that interview, Daniel shared with us really about what he does when he's training churches, what he talks about with churches in Africa and the U.S. about how we need to love the orphan and the vulnerable. And here is what he told me. Yeah, to me, to me, this is the greatest call. I mean, uh, we majorly, uh, as you know, that the Western, Western has done a great work of supporting uh, orphans around the globe. And uh, we really thank God for the good work that they are doing to help orphans. But uh, mostly when we uh, did our research, we came to find out that, uh, that uh, most of them will only look at the physical needs which you have even mentioned. They have food, they have shelter, they have uh, school fees, and that's all. It is very important because even us, we are taking care of orphans, and then, uh, but we support them with the school fees and medical in their own families, in families where they live. Mm-hmm. And that is very great. But you know, I always think about this. I always think about the spiritual aspect that when I was fostered into the family for three months, one of the things that my adopted father or fostered father did was to take me to his church and introduced me to that church. He told the church that Daniel has become one of our sons. He has given his life to Christ. We are going to disciple him. We are going to teach him. And I'm sure that I am what I am today because this family did a great work in my life. That is the spiritual aspect. That is, that's the spiritual part of it. Mm. They showed me Christ mm. to the level that even now I'm still confessing him as my personal savior. Now, I sometimes think, oh, I wish they had not taught me this. Probably I would, I would be dead. But because they put Christ first, and they did not, uh, I mean, they taught me much about this. And then I saw what they did. That really challenged my, my spirit and my heart. That's why the second time, uh, that's why the third time I did not even commit suicide because they had already sown that seed in my life, the spiritual seed. And it's very, very important. Mm-hmm. So when we take in children in our homes, it is our responsibility even to teach them, as the Bible says, that train up a child when he's still young. By the time he grows up, he will never forget. So they really taught me much that I cannot even forget what they did in my life. That's very important. So sometimes we forget about this. And then we look at only one part, which is the uh, uh, which the basic needs, but still the spiritual needs uh, needs are also very very important. Then on top of that, uh, these people, these children have gone through some emotions. They have been rejected. They have been abandoned. They have been told that you are not loved. You have no one for you. They have been shown up that nobody is there for them. So they have that kind of. Uh, that challenge emotionally. So this is the right time to bring this child back and tell that child that I love you. Mm -hmm. I love you as Christ loved the church and they have adopted you as God adopted us in his own family. And you are in my family, not because of any other thing, but because of the love of Christ. Mm -hmm. 
And then you can also bring up some other stories like how Jesus was was adopted in the family of Joseph, how Joseph, uh, I mean, how uh, Moses was adopted in the family of, of Pharaoh, how Esther was adopted. And then you can, you, you know, be able to revive the, the, the heart of this child who has been taken in. So through love. So emotionally, this child uh, has a challenge. So you need to, to also to tackle that and then bring up in the best way that the child will feel like he or she is loved. I was loved in my family. That's why I was not, uh, even now, I still remember, I still recall what they did for me. Right. It was through love. So these are some of the things that we teach. And then we we tell the world that let's not, not only look at one part of it, but let's have the five aspects. Let's bring them mm-hmm. all together. Yeah, let's also teach them some skills right. whereby when they come in your house, by, by the time they'll age out, they'll know how to do their, I mean, they will know how to, to, to wash, to do laundry. They will know how to sweep the house. They will know, I mean, they will also have some other, you you know you know some other skills like mechanics and then uh, uh, you know carpentry and then uh, uh, computer studies. So we should not just bring them, put them into a house or in an institution and just let them eat, drink, sleep, and go to school. But we should also encourage them by putting them by setting some other uh, uh, some other skills before them, so that by the time they age out they don't become a problem to the society, mm-hmm. but they become useful to the society. Right. And uh, and I've always been telling, I was telling my government recently, as I was asking them to work hand in hand, the church and the government, and I, I told them that if one child is supported by the government or by any Christian family, and this one child will save lives of people because this one child would probably after he ages out he would probably be a robber and then he could go and kill some other people then by killing them he's creating more orphans in the society mm-hmm. or in the nation than helping this one to prevent the 10 families that would have been killed mm. or to prevent the 20 families that would have been killed and then create more orphans. Mm -hmm. Because if you support one child today, you are saving, I mean, you are bringing the number of orphans down in any country, Mm. anywhere, by saving only, by paying school fees for only one child. You are saving hundreds of families. So, So that's what I was telling the government that it's very important like we do the five, the spiritual, the physical, emotional, uh, social is very important. As I told you uh, that one of the challenges, the other challenge that I went through uh, that uh, when I was fostered into the family, my father forgot or did not even take it in mind to be to take me to his family to introduce me there. And that was a challenge. Mm. So I came to realize that if he had introduced me as his son, I would probably have had someone to take me in. But the three months I was in the house, in the house, we never went anywhere. So I came to discover that social aspect is very important. Mm. 
Yeah. When you go for the wedding, take this child. Yeah. When you go for a party, take this child. When you go for sports, take this child. Let the community see you having some fun and some games and some visits together with this child you have put into your family. Mm. So that other people may come and say that, oh, that is Enoch's son. That is Daniel's son. We always see him taking him. Whenever he goes, he's always with him. When we invited him for the party, he came with him. So that brings... I mean, that gives a child an identity. Right. So most of the times, if this child is not taken out to socialize with some other children, with some other families, at the end of the day, he may also be I mean, he may be depressed after 18 years. Yeah. And he's like, he did not socialize because they are kept in one place. This is one of the challenges that uh, we, we also came to discover when they are in one place. They are in one place, like 100, 200 of them, 300. And you cannot even have time for them to take them out to be able to socialize with the community, in the community, or even with different families altogether. But if you take in one child, wherever you go, that child will be able to benefit. He will socialize with the families where uh, you'll be also be visiting. So yeah. these are some of the key aspects that we teach. And now as we draw to a close of this highlight show of a very special season one, we're going to go from a pastor in Uganda to a doctor in Louisville, Kentucky. And that doctor is Karen Hutchinson. She was in episode 19. And she is a woman who knows a whole heck of a lot about all of these things that we're talking about on this show. And Kelly was able to sit down with Karen and really just ask her what are some of the main issues that she encounters in her counseling of kids from hard places who have encountered trauma. And I encourage you to listen closely to this answer. And then after listening, go back and, and listen to her entire interview um, because it's something that we can learn a lot from. So let me talk just specifically real quick from my experience as a clinical psychologist practicing in the United States. And so my caseload at the private practice surrounds and focuses predominantly on families that have grown through foster care or adoption. And so I think one of the main things that we can do, especially where the church can come alongside families, the church has done a wonderful job in the last decade or so of promoting orphan care. The church has done a great job of um, promoting awareness and, and even some areas of advocacy. Unfortunately, what that does sometimes is it really um, kind of promotes this fantasy of what adoption can look like. And so one of the biggest areas that I find is that parents are entering into adoption and foster care with a very unrealistic expectation of what that looks like. Parenting kids from hard places is a long-term commitment. Parenting kids who have histories of hurts is often different than parenting children that we've had by birth. Research consistently shows that um, for children who don't have histories of harm, meaning for children who haven't experienced trauma, abuse, and neglect, there's a pretty wide range of parenting strategies that typically work. But when we're parenting and we're providing care for children who have histories of harm, oftentimes there's a very, very narrow range of parenting strategies. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what we see is when kiddos have had instances of being hurt, meaning neglect trauma or abuse or even witnessing domestic violence or experiencing a natural disaster, children have learned survival skills.
skills. And those survival skills are wonderful because they're here and they've learned to adapt to their environment and, and survive. But oftentimes those survival skills look like externalizing behaviors. They look like hitting, screaming, mm -hmm. kicking. They look like things that are very um, difficult to parent and they, were, they cause a lot of stress for parents experiencing those things. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, Kelly, I get a lot of calls and the calls that I receive are from parents. And oftentimes they're Dr. Karen, you know, I need, I need you to fix my kid. You know, we need mm -hmm. help with my kid. And I immediately start obviously with like an intake process mm -hmm. and an assessment process. But then my work starts with parents. My work starts with making sure that parents know who they are and whose they are, making sure that parents have an understanding of how very important it is for them to present themselves in a calm and controlled manner so that their children not only know that they're safe because of our words, but that they feel that they're safe because of our actions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times parents have waited years and years before they've received professional help and their fuses are short. Their frustration tolerance is low mm -hmm. and our kids have engaged in these behaviors or they have emotional reactions that are very difficult to manage and that kind of chips away at the connection that a parent has with their child, or it chips away at the possible attachment that parents and children can have. And it's with those great words from Karen that we're going to draw this episode to a close. But as I said earlier in the show, these clips are just a reflection of the amazing wisdom that each of these people have. And it's a reflection of the great interviews that they were able to do in each of the episodes that we referenced throughout this show. So I encourage each of you, if you haven't listened to the full interviews, to go back, download them and listen to them. If you have listened to them, go back and listen to them again, because if you're anything like me, you're going to learn something new each time you hear the words that these people are sharing. And as Kelly and I, we're always praying, we're always really, truly hoping that you're going to take all of the information that you learned from this show and you're going to apply it in your lives in such a way that will cause you and encourage you to love the orphan and vulnerable children, as well as all the other children that are in your midst and in your lives, better and better every day. Thanks so much for your downloading this episode. Thanks so much for your prayers and encouragement to us for this show. And thanks again for being part of the Think Orphan conversation. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.